go back to Revelation chapter 12. I'm hoping to finish this chapter before I leave next Sunday. Good stopping point. What we have here, for the sake of review, is a parenthesis that goes through chapter 14. Focal point of that parenthesis is a tracing of the war down through the ages between the dragon, which is Satan, the serpent, and the woman and her seed, which alludes back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15, the promised seed, which is Israel, and of course the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Two persons or characters in this parenthesis are called wonders. The others are not, so that makes sense to me that these are the two main characters, the two main players, Israel and the dragon, or Satan. And we, we have that introduced in the first couple of verses uh, of the chapter. Actually, the first four verses. And then when we get into verses 5 and 6, we see the underlying cause for this spiritual centuries-long war. Number one, it's the man-child. Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who was prophesied would crush the head of the serpent. And then it's the divine protection that God has given Israel throughout the centuries, even in the midst of His judgment, and will give them specifically in the latter half of the tribulation. This stuff makes Satan or the dragon angry. And these are the causes for this war, the promised seed, in God's preservation of Israel. We've talked before about how God preserves the earth. He preserves um, His Word. He preserves Israel and He preserves the church. And if He preserves something, Satan can't destroy it. And that makes him very angry. So those are the underlying causes. And we have in these first six verses, or actually in verses uh, uh, four through six, we, we have a tracing of world history predating or antedating Adam and Eve all the way up to the middle point of the tribulation. Of course, like Daniel's prophecy, there is a gap, the gap of the church age. The focus is Israel here, so there's, the church age is uh, not important in terms of that focal point. We talked about the dragon and his rebellion with a third of the stars of heaven that I believe predated or antedated Adam and the present creation. We have his standing to devour the seed of the woman, which traces his role and his hatred for the seed all down through the centuries, starting with Cain and going all the way down to Jesus. And when Jesus was finally born and he couldn't stop it, he attempted to destroy him and that failed and he couldn't keep him in the tomb. And so now he turns his attention to the remnant of the seed, the church, and has been her enemy all through the centuries. Of course, in verse 5, we have the man-child brought forth. That's the incarnation of Christ, His birth, His life, uh, and um, His catching up to God, which was the ascension. Um, and then we have, between verses 5 and 6, that gap of the church age, and John immediately telescopes into the last half of the tribulation, when divine protection is given to Israel just as it has been down through the centuries. So we have an entire picture of world history here. John jumping over the church age. And um, zeroing in on the woman 
and her role in the last half of the tribulation. Her role is divine protection. And let's look at verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God or prepared by God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Three, uh, a thousand two hundred sixty days is three and a half years on a 360 day calendar. We talked about this before. I believe the earth's original solar year was 360 days. And when the flood came and the canopy of the earth, the firmament came crashing down. It's like a ballerina or a figure skater when they're spinning and they pull in, it increases the speed. And so the earth's uh, uh, rotation increased to the around 365 days and 366 and it's been slowly slowing down ever since. Scientific evidence shows us that the earth's axis is slowly slowing down. And I believe in Christ's millennial reign, when the curse is removed, we'll go back to uh, a 360-day solar year. It will be the millennial year after the curse of sin is removed. And the reason this figure is used here is because the millennial reign is here. It's coming. It's, or it's on the threshold. And there's nothing that can stop it. We'll see that in verse 10 with the rejoicing of the saints in heaven. But God has prepared a place that will serve to protect Israel when Antichrist and the dragon unleashes their fury against her. A three and a half, roughly three and a half year time of what Jesus called the Great Tribulation. The man-child, this protection from God, this precipitates the war in heaven and the heavenly campaign that we're going to see beginning in verse 7. But when we talk about a place that God has prepared for Israel... We're not given much detail here, but again, if you go back to the Old Testament, we have clues and can have an understanding of where this is and where Israel or the Jews in the land at that time will be forced to flee. It will be an exodus that makes the uh, uh, Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity and the Roman driving out in 70 AD pale in comparison. Let's just look at a couple of verses in the Old Testament, or a few verses, and see what God has to say. See if we can piece together some clues here. Um, turn to Isaiah 16. Isaiah 16. I'm going to read the first five verses. Send ye the Lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah. Selah is the, the Hebrew word here that's translated Petra or rock in Greek. From Selah to the wilderness unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be that as a wandering bird cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday. Hide the outcast. Beray not him that wandereth. Beray means to betray by, by showing or to give up. Betray is a word that you use words. Beray is the same thing but through action. Uh, Beray not him that wandereth. 
Let mine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. So, Isaiah's prophesying a time when God's people will be outcast. They'll be driven from the land. From the face of the spoiler. Which ultimately is a reference to Antichrist. And God calls upon Moab to give her shelter, to hide her, not to betray her to those that want to destroy her. And mention is made here of the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness. Selah means Petra, rock. Petra was an ancient uh, city. Uh, the, 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 type, the name of the peoples that built it in southern Jordan escapes me at the moment, but it's an amazing city that was built long ago. It's a pretty big tourist spot. Um, in southern Jordan where this, and if you've ever seen, I think one of the Transformers movies that came out a few years ago actually is filmed in Petra, one of the scenes where they go into this rock, rocky city built into a canyon that was impossible to besiege. Uh, so there's reference made to that area here as being a place in which Israel can hide. Where is Moab? Moab is basically modern day Jordan, Okay. Moab was an area that Israel marched through on their way out of, the, um, out of Egypt in the wilderness wanderings. And it's modern day Jordan. So this place of protection, this covert from the fall of the extortioner is associated with Petra, an ancient capital in modern day Jordan, and the land of Moab, which is modern day Jordan. Isaiah 26 Isaiah 26, 20 and 21. Come, my people, talking to the Jews, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord comes out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. This is a reference to protection for Israel until the time of tribulation is past. So again, we have the New Testament expounding upon what's already been declared in the Old Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament, it's one. It's not either or. It's the Word of God. And it agrees doesn't contradict itself like the Quran does in countless places. Isaiah 63. Lots in the book of Isaiah about the millennial kingdom, about the God's judgment on Israel, about Israel's uh, eventual restoration. In fact, the book of Isaiah with 66 chapters is almost like a cliff's notes of the entire Bible. You can make that claim. It kind of follows that same pattern of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in its 66 books. Isaiah in its 66 chapters is like a microcosmic, uh, 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 what do you call it, when a, a bridged version of the Bible. It's the cliff notes of the Bible. It's a summary of the Bible. Isaiah 63. Who is this, verse 1, that comes from Edom? with dyed garments from Basra. Edom is also pretty much modern day Jordan. Edom was the ancient kingdom, the descendants of Esau 
Moab was of the descendants of Lot. Moab and Edom were neighbors of the land of Israel in Old Testament times. And basically, it's the modern day state of Jordan today. Part of that, the Transjordan was actually given to Israel uh, as, as an inheritance. And some of, a, a couple of the tribes, Reuben, Gab, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, stayed on the east side of the Jordan River. But they don't, Israel doesn't possess that today. They will at some point, but it's the modern kingdom or Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Um, but it says, Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? That this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I speak, I, it is I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So a question is asked, who is this glorious one coming from Edom? So he's coming from out of Jordan. Marvelous, glorious in his apparel. And the answer is, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So who is it? It's Messiah. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. Israel is in hiding in modern, the modern day land of Jordan, and yet this one who comes to bring salvation when there's no one else to stand with them comes from Edom. So what do we have happening here? I believe what we see here is possibly a quote-unquote secret coming of Christ to fight for Israel when she has none to help her. Hemmed in in the mountains in the wilderness of Edom or Basra. Basra was a great city of Edom and Moab in ancient times. Or what we could have here is Christ's descent from heaven when He descends to the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24. Okay? Uh, his descent is from east to west, as the lightning in, is from the east to the west. Usually when the storms move in, they move in from the west. Okay? Christ is going the opposite direction. His descent comes down from the east and delivers Israel and then, and then ends on the Mount of Olives. Okay? I tend to believe that Christ Himself intervenes in Israel's deliverance during the tribulation. It's a personal coming to deliver them. That's what's happening here. There's none to stand and it seems as if they will be destroyed in this place of protection and then Christ comes and delivers them. And they wake up and they begin to see that He is Messiah and when it's time, they call upon Him and His foot hits the Mount of Olives. But again, we see this connection with modern day Jordan. Psalm 60 Verses 8 through 12, God says, Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Philistia, triumph thou because of me. 
Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Wilt not thou, O God, which had cast us off? And thou, O God, which didst not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. In other words, David, representative of Israel, is calling out to God, okay? And asking, who is going to bring us into safety in Edom? And the answer, of course, is God. Many of the Psalms are actually prophetic in the sense that they describe the situation or the... the um, uh, the situation that Israel will face in the tribulation. David in his personal struggles was a prophetic picture of the persecution that awaits Israel in tribulation. And here in Psalm 60 we have reference to God leading them into safety. And that's connected with Edom. God has a purpose for Moab and Edom. When it says, cast out my shoe, uh, Edom... Uh, over Edom will I cast out my shoe. This refers to an ancient practice of purchasing real estate. Okay, The buyer would receive the shoe of the seller to show that he had taken possession and had the right to now tread the soil now belonging to him. It was a token of a transfer of ownership. So here we see Edom, or the land of Edom, modern-day Jordan, reserved and owned by God as a place of refuge for outcast Israel during the tribulation. The same thing is repeated exactly almost in Psalm 108. You have two questions in verse 9, and then they're answered by the two questions of verse 10. Again, a connection with Edom and Moab as a place of safety. Turn to Ezekiel 20. Ezekiel 20, 33 through 38. Eric, you want to read that? Ezekiel 20, 33 through 38. So here we have reference to God gathering the people of Israel out of the nations where they've been scattered. We know from other scriptures that this regathering is in unbelief. We have the valley of the or the vision of the valley of dry bones elsewhere in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel sees the dry bones come together and the sinews and the muscles form on the bones and the skin and they become a body. 
That's the regathering of Israel, but there's no life in there. They're regathered in unbelief. And then later God breathes into them and they have life. Here we have a reference to God regathering the people. And we've seen that in history. It's still happening today as one of the reasons why it's so cheap to get to Israel. We're actually flying through Moscow uh, on Aeroflot when we head out in a couple of weeks. Aeroflot used to have the reputation of the world's most dangerous and worst airline in Soviet times. I was actually on an Aeroflot flight in Russia in 1990 when the landing gear wouldn't come down. And the, the pilot was doing acrobatics in the sky that had all of our, heart, our stomachs were in our throats trying to get it to come down. There were flies in the bathroom. It was just awful. But Aeroflot has an all-new fleet. Very nice. It's totally changed since the Soviet days, and it's real cheap. And last time, I wouldn't dare think about taking that route, but I talked to somebody that goes back and forth to Israel a lot from America, and he said it was a great route. But there's a daily flight from Moscow to Israel. And there's actually an interesting agreement between Israel and Russia. Israelis can go to Russia without a visa. I can't do that. I can't leave the airport when I get to Moscow because I can't get a visa as an American. But why is that? Why is it so e easy to get to Tel Aviv from Moscow? Why is it so cheap to get there from the United States? Because Jews are making the pilgrimage to Israel in droves. Lots of Russian Jews are going home. They're still being regathered. They're pouring into the land. Jews are pouring in from places like France and other areas in Western Europe because of the Muslim persecutions. They're still doing so from all over the world. Not as many from America. The American Jew's comfortable. He doesn't want to go back. He's liberal. He doesn't want to go back. He's like the Jews remaining behind in the land of captivity. Too comfortable to care about the land of their fathers. But they're pouring back. They're still being gathered in unbelief. And here in Ezekiel, God says once that happens, He's going to take them into the wilderness and then He's going to plead with them. He's going to plead with them straight to their face. Just like He did in the days of wilderness wandering. He pled with them. What is the purpose of this? He's going to cause them to pass under the rod. And in this purging and passing under the rod and this pleading, they're going to wake up. What's the purpose of this? Verse 44, And you will know that I am the Lord when I have wrought with you for My name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, saith the Lord God. There's coming a point when what is unbelief or secular becomes religious or God-fearing. You know, that's in transition now. That's what will cause Israel to be deceived by Antichrist. There will be a treaty to rebuild their temple. They will reinstitute the ancient sacrificial system. And a secular nation becomes God-fearing. It becomes religious. But it's religious not according to truth. It's according to tradition. It's according to their wicked ways. It's according to their corrupt doings. But there's coming a time when subsequent to that, what is religious, what was secular becomes religious, but what's religious becomes messianic. And that happens in the wilderness. 
when Israel is driven from their land and given a place of safety, they're going to wake up and know that He is God, not because of the temple, not because of the sacrifices, not because of the rabbis, but because of His name's sake and because of what He has done to them. The secular becomes religious, the religious becomes messianic. That's why I'm a little uncomfortable with all of these quote-unquote Christian efforts to try to push things so Israel can rebuild its temple in Jerusalem. Yes, that's a sign of prophecy. Yes, that should give us encouragement that these things are talked about because we know the Lord's coming is nigh. But to push for it or be a part of it is just to push for the building of Antichrist's temple. So he can go in there and proclaim himself as God. I don't want anything to do with that. There are hard days coming for the people of Israel. We should pray for them and reach out to them and stand with them. But the hard days coming that result in them being driven into the wilderness will ultimately wake them up and the ultimate fruit, as Paul said, so shall all Israel be saved. So we have God um, taking Israel into the wilderness to plead with them. Okay, this all is exactly what's happening here in Revelation chapter 12. Turn to Daniel 11. Verse 41. This is talking about Antichrist. Okay, we've got a type of Antichrist earlier in the chapter, which is Antiochus Epiphanes the king of the north, and we're talking about him as a type down to verse 35. And then we have reference to the time of the end where the the author Daniel telescopes from that time about 150 B.C. all the way to the time of the end. And then he says, and the king shall do according to his will. So we've jumped from the type to the anti-type, which is Antichrist himself. Now we know the latter part of this chapter can't be talking about Antiochus Epiphanes because in verse 40, there's reference made to the king of the south and the king of the north coming against him. But Antiochus was the king of the north. So it's obviously not talking about him. This is a telescopic jump so common in prophecy. And so then, then Daniel's focus is the Antichrist himself and his campaigns and how he comes to power and what he's going to do and how he's going to suddenly come to an end. Look what it says in verse 41. He shall enter also into the glorious land. So he'll invade what? Land of Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand. Even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Basically modern day Jordan. Maybe you could throw Syria in there. Who is Edom? The descendants of Esau, who is Moab and Ammon, the descendants of Lot. They will escape him. He will not overthrow them. They will escape. They are a place reserved by God to protect Israel. Hosea 2.14 God says to Israel, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. 
It's in the wilderness that God will plead with her and she will wake up. She will wake up. And then God says, I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. What happened at Achor in the Old Testament? Anybody know? That's where the sin of Achan was judged when he stole something from Jericho and the people of Israel went to invade the city of Ai and were defeated because there was sin in the camp. And God brought it to Joshua's attention. Achan was, uh, they were still around Jericho and Achan was uh, judged. And he was stoned with his family that participated in the crime and they poured rocks on top of his grave as a testimony to God's judgment of sin. And that place became Achor. It was right there on the Jordan River. It was right there. We don't know exactly, but near Jericho, it would have been the entrance to the land. The entrance to the land right there on the Jordan. So the door of Achor would lead out of Israel or lead back in. They're driven out, and it's down kind of on the border with modern-day Jordan is where it would have been. So they're driven out, but God says, I will speak comfortably to you. And the door of Achor, which is a place of judgment, will become a door of hope. It means she will return. And in order to return, she'll have to return from Edom. That's the only way to go through that door. And so again, that connection... And then finally, look what Jesus says in Matthew 24. The Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24. He talks about this being driven from the land. He's talking to the Jews. You can't deny the Jewish context here. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. What is that event? Abomination of desolation. What's he referring to? When the Antichrist desecrates the Jewish temple and sets himself up as God, when does that happen in the tribulation? In the middle of the week. Daniel says in the middle of the 70th week. At the midpoint of the tribulation. Jesus says when you see that, he tells the Jews, verse 16, then let them which be in Judea to the mountains. Judea is the area south of Jerusalem. If you're going to flee to the mountains, you're going to flee east. You're going to cross the Jordan River and go into Edom. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened or limited, limited to three and a half years, by the way, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake. Who is the elect here in the immediate context? Israel that's given a place of protection in the wilderness, those days shall be shortened. And then he goes on to warn, if you have anybody come and say, look, I'm Jesus, or he's out in the wilderness, or whatever, uh, don't listen to it. Because, uh, or, or people that show uh, uh, great signs and wonders, don't listen to him. Jesus tells them what to look for. 
in the subsequent verses and what His coming will look like as the lightning out of the east and to the west. So, um, the flight of Israel to the mountains to escape the abomination of desolation. The mountains are to the east. It's the wilderness. Jordan is a, a land of wilderness. Petra is in a place of wilderness. And so we have that connection. God has prepared a place for Israel's protection in the latter half of the tribulation when she's driven from the land. And it's a special place that God has set aside for Himself, a place in which He will plead with His people and they will wake up. I believe this is connected to the land of Edom and Moab and possibly involves the uh, city of Petra, which was, uh, it was the Nabataeans that built it years and years and years before Christ. An amazing archaeological ruin that's pretty much intact. I was hoping we could go there on this particular trip. It's kind of expensive, but Jordan changed its visa rules. They took in, uh, they started on January 1st. You have to get a visa in your home country. You can't get it at that border anymore. So I'm not going to go through that hassle. So we're probably not going to be able to figure that out. Anyway, turn back to Revelation 12, 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Israel fled into the wilderness through the door of Achor into Edom and Moab where she's given protection in a land that will not be overthrown by Antichrist. There she has a place prepared by God, just like the church has a place prepared by Him in heaven. A place prepared by God that they, someone, should feed her and take care of her a thousand two hundred and three score days. Just like in the days of the Holocaust in Europe, there were those that protected the Jews, that hid them, that fed them, that took action to protect them from the, from the Nazis. In this day, there will be those that feed them and protect them. Who is they mentioned here? Well, obviously, it's the people of that wilderness. Who are the people of that wilderness? They're Jordanian Arabs. Jordanian Arabs. Arabs who, by nature, are an enemy of Israel, will be the ones to step in to help her. Not, not white Americans, not Europeans, but Arabs, the people of that wilderness. Jordanian Arabs. I think it's interesting that Jordan has a pretty open border with Israel in terms of being able to cross in ways you can't do in Lebanon, you can't do in Syria, and you can't do in Egypt. And there's peace, there's, there's, a, there's a peace there, fragile it may be, but Jordan, since... Uh, I guess since uh, they were involved in, in, in the attacks on Israel in the Six-Day War and the War of Yom Kippur, but they enjoyed a relatively peaceful existence since then. Okay, you can actually travel overland from Amman, the capital of Jordan, to the Israeli border and go on to Jerusalem. Okay, it's through Jordan that the Palestinians in the West Bank can get out of Israel into the Arab world. But um, So there's not the hatred at least from the government's perspective there, that you see with some of the surrounding nations. But I believe the people of that wilderness will help Israel and will be rewarded for, for it. When Israel came into the land in the book of Numbers, there was no help. When they go out, Edom and Moab will make right what was made wrong long, long ago. It's interesting how things come full circle in God's plan. Turn to Numbers Israel wanted to get in to 
to the land long ago, and they needed passage. And they asked if they could have passage. Numbers chapter 20, verses 14, says, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. Same area we're talking about. Thus saith thy brother Israel, thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us, how our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. And when we cried unto the Lord, He heard our voice and sent an angel and has brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we are in Kadesh, or Kadesh, a city in the uttermost of thy border. So we're on your border. We're on the border of your land waiting to move. Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We won't turn to the right nor to the left until we have passed thy borders. And Edom said unto him, Thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with the sword. And the children of Israel said unto him, We will go by the highway. And if my cattle drink of thy water, then I will pay for it. I will only, without doing anything else, go through on my feet. And Edom said, Thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border. Wherefore Israel turned away from him. And the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came unto Mount Hor. So they just asked for passage. They weren't asking to be fed. They weren't going to mess with anything. They promised to stay on the road. And Edom said, no, you're not coming here. If you do, we're going to fight you. And so Israel had to take a roundabout way to get into the promised land. And God remembered that and judged Edom for it. But it's interesting that at the end, the very people that wouldn't let them pass through will be the ones that welcome them in. They wanted to pass through and promise not to take anything in the land or to feed themselves from the land. But the day's coming when they'll be welcomed in and fed by the people of Edom. No help going in, but aid coming out. And that land will be blessed in the millennial kingdom. So the sin of long ago in this event is made right. The sin of long ago is made right. So I I just find that an interesting full circle and a testimony of how things can be made right. Even generations and generations later. So verse 6, God is going to drive them into the wilderness and give them a place of protection. I believe that's associated with ancient Edom, modern day Jordan, possibly involving the city of Petra, which is referred to in the the, uh, Isaiah passage called Selah or Rock. It is a place of rock. Uh, The ancient city of Petra, you enter into it through a canyon. It's unassailable and it's an amazing architectural marvel. Literally a city built into a canyon. No way to invade it. Especially back then when there wasn't a way to drop troops in from parachutes and planes. An amazing place. Never seen it with my eyes, but uh, seen some pictures and read about it. Hope that will change, but thanks to the kingdom of Jordan, I don't think it's going to. Um, Can't just cross the border. But there always is a way around stuff in Israel too, so we'll see what happens. The, the, The joke is, if you see a sign that says, don't do this, then have a great time and do it. Israelis tend to do exactly the opposite of what the signs say. So if it says no swimming, they're out there swimming. 
It says no parking, they're parking there. If it says uh, no entrance, they're entering there. So we just try to be like the people when we go to their land, blend in a little bit. So maybe it says you can't go, maybe that means we can. Alright, let's look at the next few verses, 7 through 12. Here we have the actual battle. Okay, the war's underlying cause, verses 5 and 6. Verses 7 through 12 is what I call the heavenly campaign. This war has a heavenly battle or a heavenly campaign. In verses 7 through 9, we see the battle itself. And there was war in heaven. Satan's ticked off because of this, because of the man child escaping his destruction. He's ticked off because of God's protection for Israel and the protection he gives them from Antichrist. And so there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. In verse 7, Michael and his angels attempt to expel the dragon and his angels from the heavenlies. But they resist arrest and fight. It's a defensive stand that ultimately fails to hold. So I've got here in the outline, the first part of verse 7 is an aggressive offensive on the part of Michael and his angels. Striking first. Is it an offensive or is it a defensive? I'm really not sure. They attempt to expel and Satan resists arrest. And then there's a fight and a battle. We're introduced here to the archangel. He's the fourth person in this parenthesis that's classically interpreted as the seven great personages. We've got the two wonders, then we have the man-child, and now we have the archangel. Michael, identified by name. He and his angels fought against the dragon and expelled him with his angels from heaven. Who is this Michael? Turn to Daniel 12.1. He's mentioned by names a couple of times in the Scripture. 12.1 tells us what his purpose is in Daniel. It's talking about Antichrist's reign. Uh, Jesus refers to the great tribulation after the abomination of desolation as a time of tribulation so great the world has never seen it. Daniel says the same thing, referring to that time period. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. Who is the angel talking to here? Daniel. Who's his people? Israel. Michael is the angel that stands for Israel. He's connected to the people of Israel. At the time of Antichrist, he's going to stand up. And when he stands up, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to the same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. When Michael stands up, the great tribulation begins for the earth. When Michael stands up, the people of Israel are protected and delivered. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, Michael's called one of the chief princes. 
In in verse 21 of that same chapter, Daniel is told that Michael is your prince. I find it interesting in Daniel chapter 10 verse 21 that the angel tells Daniel, I'm going to show you what is noted or what is already noted in the Scripture of truth. And there's none that holdeth with me in these things but Michael your prince. So, what the angel's getting ready to share with Daniel is already written in the Scripture of truth before Daniel even writes it. The Scripture was already penned before it was given to the prophets and the apostles. As Jesus said forever, O Lord, or as the Word says in Psalms, forever, O Lord, Thy Word is in heaven. God's already written the Word. What we have is His deliverance. It predated its actual deliverance. What the visions that were given to Daniel were already written in the Scripture of Truth. Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. Okay? Uh, but it's, Daniel is connecting Michael with the children of Israel. If we go to Jude verses 9, right before Revelation, Michael is mentioned again. He's called the archangel in Jude verse 9. We've talked about this before. Uh, Jude is warning about false teachers that speak hastily about rulers and dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. So there was a contention here involving Israel and its leader, Moses, his body. He did not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. We need to be careful about how we run our mouth at the devil and his angels. Let the Lord rebuke him. So there's a long history of contention with the dragon over all things Jewish. Michael would not bring a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. But, there's coming a time when Michael stands up and he's given permission to fight and expel the dragon from heaven. Now, in Jude, the church age, the Lord rebuked thee. Revelation 12, uh, he stands up, now is the time to fight. What kind of fight is it? When is it okay to fight? I think what we see here with Michael and his angels is a picture of what's given us or what we're exhorted to be in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 24, 10 through 12. Listen to what Solomon has to say. This is a theme verse for us in our martial arts class. If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. You can talk a big talk. You can claim to have a black belt rank. You can claim to have all these guns and be strong and without fear. But when you faint in the day of trouble, you have no strength. It's small. If thou forbear, in other words, if you stay back or you stay out of it, if you forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, Doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render every man according to his works? If you see those delivered unto death or ready to be slain, and you're like the priest and the Levite that just walk on by on the road to Samaria and you do nothing, then the one who keeps you safe is going to remember that you didn't act to keep someone else safe. And he's going to 
repay you according to your works. When is it okay to fight? It's okay to fight when it involves delivering the innocent from death and from harm when they cannot defend themselves. And that's exactly what Michael and his angels stand up to do. Israel is drawn unto death. Israel is ready to be slain. And Michael and his angels don't forbear. They stand up to defend her against the dragon. This is not... I'm not suggesting what Proverbs 26 says. Proverbs 26, 17 says, Don't go by and meddle yourself in someone else's conflict. Because that's like taking a dog jerking it by the ears. We know what happens when you jerk a dog by the ears. This is... The Bible's not contradicting himself. Defending the defenseless is what Proverbs 24 exhorts us to do. Staying out of other people's foolish conflict and strife is also what we're told to do. No contradiction there. We have a responsibility, especially those of us that are trained to do so, to help those that cannot defend themselves. And a model for that in the heavenlies is Michael and his angels. Expelling Satan and his angels when they are ready to draw Israel unto death. Satan, of course, resists this arrest. A disastrous resistance, a disastrous defensive, of course, that fails. It says that in verse 8, that the dragon and his angels prevailed not. They prevailed not in terms of retaining access to the heavenlies or in terms of the destruction of the woman and the man-child. They failed. They were expelled. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. We're told some things about Satan or the dragon in this present church age. Let's look at a couple of New Testament verses. Daniel, if you'll look up Ephesians 2.2. 2. Jason, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And Mr. Bob, Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. We're told here in Revelation that a time is coming when Satan uh, and his angels will lose their place or their access to heaven. There won't be a place found for them anymore in heaven. Did this happen in the past or is this a future event? What are the state of things in the present church age according to the New Testament epistles. Ephesians 2.2 2. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the sky, the heavenlies. He has access to the air. What we see in Revelation 12 is he's cast to the earth. But Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air in this present church age. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. So Satan is also the god of this world that blinds the eyes of the unbelievers. He's the devil that deceives the whole world there in Revelation 12. That, world, that word world, does it mean God of this earth? Is it the same or is God of this world, God of this earth different? 
The earth is not Satan's. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world is the world's systems. Business, society, politics, religion, government. Satan is the god of the world's systems. And the prince of the power of the air. So in other words, he has access to the world's systems here on earth and he has access to the air in this present church age. He's not the God of the earth itself. Psalm 24.1 says that belongs, that ownership belongs to the maker, the earth. What does Ephesians 6, 11, and 12 say, Mr. Bob? Put on the whole armor of God that he may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principality, against powers, against the rules of the darkness of this world against spiritual weakness and high power. Okay? So Satan is or his Satan and his minions are described as spirit rulers of the power of darkness of this world, rulers over spiritual wickedness in high places. What does that word mean in the New Testament? It's original language. That word high places means heavenlies. Heavenly places. Literally, it means above the sky. Celestial. There's no other meaning. Spiritual wickedness in high places. That is above the atmosphere of the earth. In the second heaven. Access to the heavenlies. At this time, the access that is revoked in Revelation 12 still stands. Or these verses make no sense. There are those that teach that Satan was cast out of heaven at the cross. And that we're now living in the millennium. Some would say these are the same folks that would say the church has replaced Israel. Okay? And that all of this is allegorical and symbolic and we never can truly understand its meaning. But if that's true, if that timeline is true, then these verses Paul writes make no sense. Because they're written to the church who is to be on guard against spiritual wickedness in high places. On guard against the God or the prince of the powers of the air. And on guard against the God of this world, the God of the world's systems. What we have is an enemy, a spiritual enemy that has access to both uh, 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 dimensions. Ask the astronauts of the Apollo moon missions if they would be honest with you whether or not Satan's been banned from the heavens. There's some things that went on up there that have been kept from our understanding. Things that have been hidden. There were things seen on the moon and in the vicinity of the moon. It wasn't aliens from a foreign planet. It was spiritual wickedness in high places letting man know you're in our realm now. Be careful. Okay? Those things happen. We don't know all the details and it's another thing covered up by our government. But what is all this stuff people are seeing the skies? It, it, it's not... Uh, it doesn't surprise me. Satan's the prince of the power of the air. He lives to deceive the world. So it makes sense to me people would have these encounters with UFOs and all of these crazy things that would turn people's attention from the things of God. In fact, I can see how even though a rapture on a worldwide scale that would remove Christians, I believe the number of true believers in the world is a lot smaller than people think, but when Christians are taken out of this world, it will easily be explained away by the prince of the powers of the air. People will believe aliens took them. People will believe uh, 
uh, uh, evolution just got rid of the, the, the vile things so that man could evolve to the next level. But Satan is the prince of the power of the air and I believe some of that was demonstrated, that access, that presence in the heavenlies was demonstrated on the Apollo moon missions. And we'll never know the truth about that until eternity. After the cross, after the cross, after the resurrection, believers, the church, the New Testament epistles were written to tell us how to behave in the church or in the church age. The church is warned of the devil and his angels in high places. But here, Revelation 12, at the midpoint of the tribulation, not at the cross, as replacement theology and amillennial theology teaches, but at the midpoint of the tribulation, that changes. The heavenlies, or the heavenly becomes earthy. Now, for us, Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, what are we to do? How do we battle this one who has access to the heavenlies? We put on the whole armor of God. The only offensive weapon being what? The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith as well, the helmet of salvation, loins girt about with truth, our feet prepared to preach the gospel, breastplate of righteousness. For us, that's our. That's how we respond. That's how we handle Satan's current place. Later, for them, what can they that dwell on the earth when he is cast out do? Woe unto them. Verse 12 of chapter 12 in Revelation. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he has but a short time. For us, we have weapons. For them, they've got no hope. Quite a contrast drawn there. Verse 9, this is the first time in Scripture Satan is explicitly identified as the serpent in the Garden of Eden. We figure it out. But here there's no question who the dragon is and who the, uh, who the serpent is in the Garden of Eden. This is the first time in Scripture it's explicitly stated that that was Satan. And we're also told his primary strategy, his primary mode of operation is to deceive the whole world. Deceive the whole world. Why are we surprised that Satan would masquerade as an angel of light? Why are we surprised that he, was ma he would masquerade as what looks like quote-unquote Christian? What looks like, quote-unquote, the love Jesus told us to have. He exists to deceive the world. 2 Corinthians 11 says, Don't be surprised when false teachers appear to be godly. When they appear to speak for the Lord. Don't be surprised because Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. And his ministers are the same. That's what he does. He deceives the world. He deceives the church into ineffectiveness and he deceives the world into eternal damnation. What are we to do? We're to do what the church won't do anymore. 1 John 4, verse 1. I, I got this um, piece of equipment I ordered the other day because some of the guys that I fraternized with in martial arts wanted 
gather a bunch of the old VCR tapes and I'm going to try to change it into a digital format and put together a database that we can all have and share with each other, old tapes and things like that. So I bought this piece of equipment that I can hook from, a, I can connect a VCR to my computer and I can pull the fit footage off a VCR tape and it transforms it into an MP3 format. It's very easy. And so I decided to test it yesterday. I had this videotape that when I took a preaching class at Liberty, um, the professor filmed us and we had to do these mini sermons and he would like be talking in the background and telling us what we're doing wrong and, and things like that. And so I actually have the tape from that class that has some of the first sermons I ever preached. So I threw it in there the other day. I looked like a complete, I mean yesterday, I looked like a complete dork. I was moving around. I couldn't keep still up there. But the first sermon I preached in that preaching class was 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. And I talked about how we have to be careful of false teachers. And so it was kind of, kind of interesting. And what I saw when I listened to it is that all the way back in, I guess this would have been 1994 or, or 95, I can't remember which year it was, my theology hadn't changed. The same theology I preached as a young Christian, I'm preaching to you now. I'm not swinging on a pendulum back and forth like some of these people. One day they're a hyper-Calvinist, one day they're a hyper-Arminian. Those are like waves tossed to and fro on the sea. I was encouraged by the grace of God that my theology has not changed. Sorry, I didn't mean to bang it that hard. <laughs> I'm sick and tired of these people claiming to believe something one day and then they sway back and forth claiming to be taught by the Scriptures and they're not. Because their God is their own belly. But friends, it's ten years later and what I said on that day in that class about 1 John 4, what I'll say it today because that's not changed. A man of God and his preaching stays largely consistent because the Holy Spirit doesn't change. If a teacher's not listening to the Spirit of God, oh, he'll swing all over the place. And I know that's the testimony of other men in here. Consistency. Not that we're not taught. Not that our understanding of the Scriptures is not refined. It is refined and polished. But our convictions, what we preach, the Gospel, it doesn't change. That's the mark of a man of God. That's the fruit of long-term ministry. Beware of those that swing back and forth. But anyway, 1 John 4.1, what are we to do? This dragon deceives the whole world. He's in heaven now. He will be expelled, but he's the deceiver. What are we to do? We're to do what the church will not do anymore. 1 John 4.1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Man, the church today, if you claim to be representing God or Jesus, everybody just believes you. And if you question that, then you're a hypocrite or a Pharisee. And some of the garbage that gets peddled in this Lifeway bookstore and some of these things that get quoted all the time, absolute garbage. But because somebody says they're a Christian, we just believe it. That's the Christian thing to do. No, the Christian thing to do is not to believe everything you hear. Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. Test them to see whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. How do we know what the Spirit of God is? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that Spirit of Antichrist. Whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now it is already in the world. 
But you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. <coughs> Test the spirits. The dragon exists to deceive the world. He's a deceiver. A deceiver is not obvious. A counterfeiter is not obvious. He's a charlatan. Okay? Lots of charlatans in the martial arts world. My little birthday dinner with friends last night, we had a great time looking at footage online of these fake dojos. We call them Mick dojos and Mick black belts. And just a joke. They got the gi, they got the black belt, they got the certificates, but they're charlatans. And the proof is in their actions and in the garbage they teach and the things they peddle about themselves. It's the same thing with, with false teachers and with the devil himself. It's not obvious. It's not pitchfork and horns. It's an angel of light. And we are told to test the spirits. And what's the thing we should look for? What does the spirit, what does the teacher say about Jesus? Do they emphasize without apology that he is God? If that takes a back burner, watch out. If somebody is asked that question in a public forum and they dance around it, watch out. False. The heart of one led by the Spirit of God is they're not ashamed to say that Jesus the Christ is come in the flesh. Jesus is God and Jesus is man. If any of that's denied or somebody tramples around that's afraid to say it, false teacher. Throw everything they say in the garbage can. I don't care if it sounds good. I've got no use for it. I've taken books off my shelf to make room, but I don't pass them on to other people because some of it's just fluff and garbage. Ricky and I had a nice book burning a couple years ago when I needed to make room on my shelves. And there was, some, there was a, quite a few Beth Moore books that burned in the flames. Garbage, in my opinion. Garbage. Shrill, too. Oh, man, it hurts the ears. Garbage. But there was a time when we thought it was all great. But Jesus is God eventually took a back seat. And that's exactly what we're warned about here. Satan deceives the whole world. The dragon exists to deceive. And that won't stop even when he's cast out of heaven. At that time we won't be here, but now we are. How can we protect ourselves? Test the spirits. How do we test it? We're told to do it, but the church... And we're given the means to do it, but the church has cast aside the tool to do it with. When you remove the authority of the Scriptures and you appeal to experience, you lose the ability to test the spirits. This is what tells us whether it's of God or not. Be careful, church. Be careful. Don't underestimate the power of the dragon to deceive. The deceiver of the whole world. Nevertheless, he is cast out. That word there in Revelation 12 when it says um, in verse 9, the dragon was cast out, it literally means he was tossed. There's a way I could say it, but it's kind of uh, slang. I won't say it. I'll leave it to your imagination. He was literally tossed, physically removed, and forcibly expelled with his angels. Michael and his angels were allowed and given power by God to toss his rear end to the earth. This is a visible picture of how we should expel the devil's lies and temptations. Cast them out by the Word of God. Don't play with them. Don't underestimate them. 
throw them down. Speak out bluntly against false teaching. Not in the name of being nice and agreeable. Let it slip. A visible picture of how we should expel the devil's lies and temptations. I just want to, I'm going to end here. Let's turn to one verse, make it practically applicable, not just all about future prophecy. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10, and I'll end with this today. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. We're talking about a point in, future, in the future. But we're still living in the church age when the devil's the prince of the power of the air, and the same hatred and deception he displays in this heavenly war he has now, and he's being allowed to continue until he's cast out. And he's cast out forcibly. A picture of how we should deal with his lies and deceptions and temptations. Second Corinthians ten, verse three, for we walk, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What are the weapons of our warfare? The fruit of the Spirit. The armor of God. The offensive weapon being the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. So what are we to do? Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What we're given a visible picture of in Revelation 12 is how we ought to handle the dragon's lies and temptations. Casting it out. Forcibly expelling it. Despite the temptation's resistance of such arrest, casting it out by the sword of the Spirit. Not nice, but resolved. Active, not passive. Alright, I'll end there today. I didn't get quite as far as I want to, but I still think we can finish up uh, next week. There's some interesting things here about um, uh, what happens when victory is declared. There are people dwelling in heaven at that time that rejoice. And they're contrasted with people on the earth. I think we have some subtle, subtle references to the church and a pre-tribulational rapture. And then uh, Satan's attempts to go after the woman in the wilderness. Um, and that will bring an end to chapter 12.